Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a sermon from Yuri Brito entitled, A Temple Theology on Easter Morning. Check out more Easter audio and video content now on Canon Plus. In the words of my mouth, in the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our nearest kinsman, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ is risen. The people of God, the Eastern narrative does not have a great ring of drama. After all, the symbol of Easter is the empty tomb. And you can't depict and you can't domesticate emptiness. You can't wear it. The narrative of Easter is a very simple one. So simple that the writers of the Easter story include in their narratives their faults, their lack of faith, and even their own despair. How can the event we celebrate on this day be the greatest event in human history? How can Paul say that without the resurrection we are, of all people, most to be pitied? But this event is certainly the most important feast in the calendar of the Christian church. Easter is the victor of events. It is the feast of feasts. It is the most explosive champagne bottle that burst into historical scene. Easter is for celebration. On this day, every diet is left behind. Easter means our Lord rules over everything in heaven above and in earth below. And perhaps the most surprising element of Eastertide for many, including myself, many of us who didn't grow up, around the church calendar, is that Easter does not end at midnight today. Easter lasts 50 days in the calendar of the church. That is, children, parents, you have 50 days to celebrate, to eat all the candy you want. I am partially kidding. To delight to enjoy the fruits of the empty tombs. That means we have seven Sundays to sing and to shout, He is risen, He is risen indeed, hallelujah. This morning, what I want to do on this Easter Sunday is to provide a glimpse into that wonderful story through the lens of a very unique character in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 20. And she is named Mary Magdalene. We see this in the opening words. When Mary Magdalene arrives on the tomb on that Easter morn, she realizes that they may have stolen the body of her Lord. Or as the wonderful Bishop Barron wrote in yesterday's edition of the Wall Street Journal, he notes that cemeteries are places to ponder and perhaps to smile. They're places of rest and finality. And he says that the last thing you would expect when you come into a cemetery, realistically at a grave, you would never expect novelty or a surprise. Indeed. Perhaps, she may have thought, the grave robbers have come to desecrate his corpse. The thought that Jesus had been raised from the dead did not cross her mind, so she does what is natural to her. She runs to share the news. She becomes the carrier of 
the greatest update in history, which so far for her is an update of dread and sadness. She is, at this stage of history, the ambassador of bad news at this stage. And as she approaches Peter and John, and their reaction is common, as you might expect. They are startled by the update, and the news causes them to rise from the lethargy of grief. They begin to run. It is fascinating that the resurrection scene begins like a 5K event. The text adds this very classic detail. It says, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. The other disciple, of course, is John, the very author of this narrative in which we read on this Lord's Day. But John is not just informing us on this narrative. He's not just letting us know of his extensive athletic abilities as a runner. John's point is that he arrives first at the scene because John has first-hand knowledge of the temple, and John has first-hand knowledge of the functions of the priests in the temple. John, again, is reflecting on this Easter narrative, on this Easter day, and he is reflecting as a theologian of the temple. And John comes first because he is the one who is uniquely qualified to speak about what the tomb represents. And he wants to be the one who shares with the world the theology of the resurrection from his very sophisticated perspective. And John is about to give us a theology of the temple that hopefully we will never forget. In fact, the resurrection, the empty tomb, is all about connecting us to the temple imagery of the Old Covenant. After all, where is Jesus buried? Jesus is buried in a garden. And in this garden, John gives us a tour de force here of the temple. Now remember that in John chapter 2, some chapters previously, the great John has already told us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. That Jesus is the realization of the temple. And so how do we test John's theory? We test it by the word of God. And we know that as we look at the furniture of the temple, that what is there in the temple? There are many furniture pieces. Among them is a lampstand that gives light to the location. In John's Gospel, how does John portray Jesus? He portrays Jesus as the lampstand of the world, as the light of the cosmos. In the temple, there is an altar of incense where the high priest would come and offer prayers on behalf of the people. In John, we see Jesus, who is the lampstand of the temple. He is the light of the world. He comes and he offers a high priestly prayer. He is the altar of incense. And in that well-known account of John 13, which we recited on Monday Thursday, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And all of that is rich with temple symbolism. What does he do before he washes the disciples' feet? He very carefully lays aside his priestly garments. He takes them off, and then he washes their feet. Under the law, the priest would enter into the most holy place to make atonement for the people. What would he do before he entered the holy place to make atonement for the people? He would take off his linen clothes, and then he would put a different set of clothing and garments called the clothing or the garments of glory. That's what a priest would do. Now, if in the Old Testament a priest were to offer 
a perfect sacrifice to Yahweh, then we as a people, as Israelites, we would walk after the priest and we would come into the presence of God. That is, if the priest offered a perfect sacrifice. And that is why we see that the hunger of the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures, the hunger of God's people is that they would experience, that they would be in the presence of Yahweh Himself. But in the Old Testament, we know that there is a limitation to this old system. Because we know that the priests could never offer a perfect sacrifice. They could only offer a temporary sacrifice, which meant that we as the people could never truly come into the presence of Yahweh Himself. Now, take all that imagery and walk with me, with Peter and John, into the tomb, which is nothing more than a miniature temple. And what do we see? And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded neatly in the place by itself. Wherever Jesus went, the linen cloths, wherever he went that Easter morning, we know that John says the linen cloths did not go with him. They were just lying there. Coincidental? Of course not. They were set aside, brothers and sisters, because Jesus no longer needs the clothing of a temple priest. Jesus went ahead and made atonement as the high priest, so now he sets aside the temple clothing and he puts on a new humanity, a new garment of glory and beauty. Why? Because unlike the Old Testament priest, the sacrifice of Jesus was perfect because he offered his own body. And since the sacrifice was perfect, since the old priestly cloth was set aside, we now follow Jesus into the Holy of Holies. We can now be in the presence of God. The tomb is the picture of the Holy of Holies. And Jesus says, I am the true temple. Now you can come into my presence. He says, I am the Word made flesh, and I will tabernacle in your midst as the risen high priest. And then John says that after that exposition he gives of the temple, the disciples who disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. But at this stage of human history, the disciples are still putting the resurrection pieces together. And the Bible says that they go home. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb as she wept. And as she wept, she stooped to look within the tomb. And here we have Mary making some very unique theological mistakes that actually causes us to have some remarkable insights into the resurrection account. The first mistake we see here that Mary Magdalene makes is that she weeps outside of the tomb. She fails to understand the promises of Jesus' resurrection. That very promise is within the tomb. It is inside the tomb. And it is, in some ways, a very natural mistake, but yet she mistakens by weeping 
when the source of all joy is no longer dead. But notice that Mary does not remain in her weeping state. She perseveres. What does she do? John says very specifically, she takes a peek at the temple, at the Holy of Holies. And then she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. A couple of fascinating points here that John gives us in this narrative that we tend to overlook. Note first and foremost that Mary comes to the tomb, and what does she see? Mary sees an angel on either end of the place where the body of Jesus had been laid. Bring out your Old Testament history, your temple history, and you will know immediately that this is a holy place. This is like the Ark of the Covenant with an angel on either side of the mercy seat. We have another temple imagery here in the Gospel of St. John. And if this is in any way a picture of the temple, then Mary is remarkably bold to look in, isn't she? Because who were the ones who were capable of looking in the temple? Only the high priest. But Mary looks in with no fear. Her theology is beginning to look a lot more like a resurrection theology because resurrection gives boldness to the disciples of Jesus. Now, secondly, we remember here, let us again go back to our Old Testament history. We remember that Eve, the woman, was the mother of all, leave, of all living. Remember that Eve was the picture of the bride in the Garden of Eden here. And that being the case, notice how the angels speak to Mary Magdalene. What did they say to her? They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Woman, why not Mary? Why are you weeping? Very purposeful in the text. Because here John wants to direct our attention to the first woman. It's hearkening us back to Eve in the garden. She was the first woman who witnessed and experienced death. She saw the garden fall because of human sin. She saw the garden's doors shut by whom? Shut by angelic beings. She saw the world's first temple closed down due to sin. The first woman saw and engaged death and failure. And now, now, there is another woman. And she is in another garden. And she sees another temple in another garden. But now, the door to this temple tomb is wide open. Now there are no angels with flaming swords there to protect it. Now there are two angels asking her, Why are you weeping? Don't you see that your Lord is not here? And immediately after that inter interrogation, John says, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And listen, supposing him, that is Jesus, to be a gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, 
Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. The Bible never provides unusable information. We may say here that she misidentifies the resurrected Jesus as a gardener. This is a genuine misidentification, but let us just say that it is perhaps the most brilliant misidentification in all of human history. Take that misidentification to the bank. And John uses this scene here as a good writer. He uses it brilliantly in his favor. Again, keep in mind where the tomb is, brothers and sisters. Where is the tomb? The tomb is in the garden. And the woman, follow me here, the woman refers to Jesus as a gardener. Do your Bible work. There is now a man and a woman in the garden. You're starting to get the picture. Who is this gardener? He is none other than the new Adam. The new Adam who is risen from the garden. And the reference to Mary Magdalene as woman is identifying her also with the first woman, Eve. And what does the book of Genesis say about this scenario? He says that it is not good for men to be alone. And so if it is not good for men to be alone, what does he need? Man here, the second Adam, needs a woman to symbolize his church in this resurrected scene. And what does this all mean? It means that there is a new genesis taking place in the garden scene. It means that Jesus now is given a bride, a bride to guard. And unlike the first Adam, Jesus will protect his bride faithfully to the end of time. The first Adam got his bride when God put him to sleep. Remember that? And then what happened from his side? A bride was formed. A woman was formed. And where is Jesus now, beloved? Jesus was put to sleep by the Father, the sleep of death, and His side was pierced. And what flowed from it but water and blood through which Christ formed us, His holy and glorious church, His bride. Mary Magdalene thinks she has been left alone. She thinks all her hope is now vanished. But Jesus promises as a new Adam that He will guard and keep His bride and love her to the end. And then Mary makes one more brilliant mistake. One more. Just one more. Hang with me. One more. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. And she turned to him and he, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said this. Things to her. Mary's classic theological blunders, which our Lord gladly corrected, was the mistake of clinging to Jesus. And how is this a mistake? Shouldn't Jesus have said, the woman, cling to me now while you have a chance? The answer is no. 
because she will be able to cling to Jesus more fully and more intimately when he ascends because Jesus does not want a mere temporary clinging. Jesus wants a clinging to his people and his bride that is permanent and enduring forever. What is better than holding Jesus? Jesus' answer is, when the Father and the Son and the Spirit make home in you, that is ultimate bliss. On this Easter Sunday of 2021, we can hold closer to Jesus now than when he was in his resurrected body on that Easter morn. The Trinity abides in you, brothers and sisters. Jesus is nearer to us through his spirit than when he was on earth. Jesus wants men to see that there is a better way of cleaving, which will happen when he ascends to the right hand Father. What does our blessed risen Lord expect from us in these next 50 days? He expects to be the embodiment of hope in all our human sorrow. Is it not a fascinating fact? The person to whom Jesus showed himself alive after the resurrection was a woman who was weeping. Easter is not just a reminder that we will live again after death, though that is strongly a part of it. It is a season to be reminded that we will live again in this life when facing death-like situations now, this year, this moment, this hour, this day. It was the voice of Jesus who called her by name that gave Mary hope. The angels refer to her as woman, but the new Adam refers to her by name. Jesus calls us on this Easter morn by name. And so this Easter season, children, Adults, everyone, these next 50 days, let us be reminded that the resurrection was not just an event that shaped the pages of history. It was an event that shaped our lives as a people who suffer and endure at times the pain of hopelessness. In Easter, in Easter, we find Jesus. We find a new Adam who says to all of us, Come, stop weeping. The tomb is empty. The garden is restored. I will tabernacle with you forever. Christ is risen. Let us rise together as we receive our tithes and our offerings on this Lord's Day. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more Easter video and audio content now available on Canon+. Plus.